Hi, I'm Nicole Breeden. And I'm Kira Brekurek. And you're listening to ProPrac, a podcast where we explore the professional practice of artists and hear their stories. Hi, and thanks for listening to ProPrac today. Today we have with us in the studio Tarika Mbolotamidi. Tarika is a Fijian Australian mother, artist, and educator who produces multidisciplinary projects centering around the counter narrative of marginalized histories and knowledges through curatorial collaboration, photography, video, installation, and publication. She is the recipient of numerous grants from the Australia Council for the Arts, Creative Victoria, and the National Association of Visual Arts, and her work has been exhibited in San Francisco, New York, Taiwan, Mexico City, Jogjakarta, New Zealand, and Australia. Tarika is a lecturer in art and performance in the School of Communication and Creative Arts at Deakin University and has a PhD from the School of Art and Design, University of New South Wales. She has published in peer-reviewed journals and presented at local and international conferences on the representation of mixed-race identity, Pacific arts practice in Australia and Fiji, and gender and militarism in the Pacific. In her role as Symposium Coordinator for the Contemporary Pacific Arts Festival in 2013 and 2014, Tarika curated multiple panels to extend the discourse around contemporary Pacific arts practice in Australia and invited speakers to reflect on themes such as art and activism, museums, collecting and curating, cultural appropriation and contemporary practice. She also produced the symposium publication Mana Motu. Tarika also produces projects such as the Pacific Photo Book Project and the Community Reading Room, which foster life-affirming spaces for creative communities of colour. Thanks for joining us today in the studio, Tarika. Thank you for inviting me. We're so happy to have you here. Uh, all right, so um, why don't we kick off with um, telling us the story of how you became an artist. So I was born in Hobart, in Tassie, in the mid-70s. Um, my mum was from the northwest coast of Tasmania and my dad was from a village called Suvavo in Fiji. Vidi Levu. Um, and I, yeah, so I was born in Tassie, grew up there, sort of between Hobart. Mum moved around a lot. So she, we moved back to live in my dad's village in Subavo for the first few years of my life. And then she worked in children's homes in Sydney. So we kind of did this triangulation between Tassie and Fiji and, and Sydney. Mm. Um, we lived in a lot of places. I think by the time I was 10, we'd lived in over 10 places it was very kind of um I wouldn't say it was a very stable kind of Mm -hmm. um first few years there was um some bouts of homelessness and um women's shelters and it was all a bit you know there was lots of crazy stuff happening Mm -hmm. um but I think the longest we ever sort of we was sort of situated was um probably halfway through primary school and um we got a housing commission place um, in Sandy Bay, which was walking distance because I just grew up with mum pretty much. They, mum and dad separated when I was in primary school, mm-hmm. about grade three, I think. Did you have any siblings? Um, I didn't meet them until much, much later. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I actually have heaps. Mm. Um, so dad remarried and um, so I met them all at actually at his funeral mm. Um and have met other siblings subsequently much later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he came in and out of our lives for the first few years. He tried to move to Tassie, but it was just, it was too cold. I think he even, he stowed away at one point and got sent back to Fiji uh, on an aeroplane and then got sent back. And then um, I remember he came to see one of my auntie's drama productions in the middle of, like, Launceston in winter, and he was just, this was his first experience of, you know, Australia oh and it was gosh. just freezing and he's trying to fit this, he used to sleep in his beanie and, um, yeah, it didn't work. He got a job at the Zinc Works mm-hmm. back down in Hobart, actually near Mona, Yeah, you know, you go past it. Um, and I remember having for years this like little sample of zinc that he'd bought home. It was like a 50 wow. cent piece. <laughs> Ridiculous. But, um, yeah, so, but that didn't work out. Um, he ended up moving to Sydney eventually and having another family there and I'm really close with, um, those brothers and sisters now. But yeah, um, in terms of art, mum, like there was a lot of instability in my early years, but that, but actually art was kind of like the, the most stable thing. So we didn't have a lot of money, but somehow mum managed to take me to, um, like we didn't go on holidays 
a lot overseas, but she would like take me on the boat to go to Melbourne to see the Picasso exhibition at the NGV Amazing. or something, or like we, you know, we would always go to the Theatre Royal to see um, like the Sydney Dance Company and Philippe Jonti and Marcel, uh, Marcel Marceau um, perform. So there was, you know, that was, no, that was my normal, like that was mm. kind of really, I guess, the stable thing. Um, in my life. And she was a, a bit of a hippie. So we went to a lot of, you know, folk music was her life. Yeah, always a lot of music and colour. And, uh, but neither of them went to, um, they fin- didn't finish high school or they just finished high school, but mm-hmm. no one sort of went on to any kind of tertiary education after that. So there was mm-hmm. sort of no, I didn't ever have a vision of doing that myself. There was no model for that. Yeah. On my dad's side of the family or my mum's side of the family. So, um, I I sort of I had never thought that that would be something that I would do. So was there like a point where you you know you were sort of like making things and like doing doing your yeah own kind always of thing and, yeah and then, and then you sort of kind of started doing that more and more and then was there a point for you where you you were like okay well maybe I'm gonna maybe try and pursue this a little bit or um, I think yeah when um, I bought a camera so probably high school I mean I'd always mm. done you know art artistic um, creative things in my own extracurricular stuff like ceramics classes and and things like that um, through primary school. But I think in high school we had a particularly great um, art teacher who was a Catholic school, a Catholic high school called Mount Carmel um, and because mum used to work for one of the um, the nunneries that they were at or the, the children's homes that was a, the same order of nuns, um, I was given kind of one of their Mm-hmm. you know, charity spots. Yeah. Um, and so at that particular um, school there was uh, a couple of like convent sites that were unused and so one of the art teachers there turned it into a dark room just wow. as, and when we were in about grade um, seven or eight, no, at, probably grade eight, which was really exciting and she brought her own camera in and just taught people who were interested in um, in using it and that was the first experience I had with um, you know, proper SLR camera. Mm-hmm. And then um, dad hadn't been paying his, um, what is it, maintenance, child maintenance. Mm-hmm. And then one day it just, he must have got a job when he was living in Sydney and it just kind of arrived in, you know, like $800 or something in my um, bank account. And so I bought with that money, first of all, mum said, don't touch it because it's probably going to, it's a mistake, you know, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> Just leave it there. Um, and then she was like, okay, you can use it. So I bought, there was a little camera store, um, I think on Collins Street or somewhere, and um, and they had a deal where you could buy a camera and get an enlarger. So um, I I purchased my first camera and, and la- enlarger when I was in about grade eight or nine. And then wow. um, so we had this tiny, tiny little um, two-bedroom um, housing commission place, but mum helped me buy some blackout curtain. And so we turned this little space that was probably just like about one and a half metres long by, I know, a metre wide. Mm. And I just put all my larger stuff on top of the washing machine and the blackout curtain. And then the bath was the washing thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just, um, yeah, sort of picked up where my teacher at Mount Carmel had left off and just practiced my skills at home, did my own toning and stuff at home, um, much to my mum's horror. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, and then went on to continue doing a lot of photography and um, and visual arts and painting um, through uh, year 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. Um, had a great um, art teacher there called Wayne Brooks. I think he's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ended up being also, because I went on a bit of a tangent then at the end of um, like year 11 and 12 and started playing in bands. And so um, I was playing bass guitar for an, a number of bands um, through that period. Mm-hmm. And then so I didn't think about going on to university because we all moved over to Melbourne. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I just kind of quit, I guess, art and just, uh, yeah, joined just a rock bands. Band. Dance for a bit. Yeah. yeah. So, well, it's a bit hard to, you know, take your enlarger with you when you're on tour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that for a while um, and then moved back to Tassie when the band broke up or I left that particular band, had 
multiple other bands after that and then thought about going to university mm-hmm. in Hobart. So, yeah, I enrolled at the art school there. It was that, that was really hard though actually, getting my head around the just the enrolment process because mum had not been through that herself. So it was, um, I think I remember her saying to me at one stage, if you can't work out how to fill out the, the paperwork, you probably shouldn't be there. And I was like, mm. okay. But I got there and yeah. I remember... Um, it was, it was kind of messy the first couple of years. I didn't even know there was like a lab on campus where I could type my essays. Um, so I was still handwriting stuff. It was ridiculous. Um, and I was sort of doing subjects half at the art school and then half over at the humanities campus. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, because I've always wanted to kind of have both, Mm. Um, both things going at the same time. So, uh, but UTAS weren't very, at that time, weren't very good at supporting people who wanted to do kind of um, Mm -hmm. a mix like that. So I ended up looking around at other courses that were available and found the one at Deakin, which um, was really clear about facilitating that kind of um, research and practice and, you know, combining all of that. So Mm -hmm. applied to come over and, yeah, and moved over, moved back. I should say. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and that's sort of where you, you've kind of been a deacon kind of since then or you've... Yeah, so I did my undergraduate. So I ended up repeating a few things just because I wanted yep. to get a sense of the different facilities. Like I mm-hmm. probably didn't need to, you know, I could have got credit for a couple of things. Yeah. I remember feeling really disappointed though when I got to deacon because they had, um, it's different now, but at the time... They didn't have, um, you know, you couldn't do any tray enlargement or mm. anything. It was all just like this machine where you had to put your eight by ten in yeah. and anything uh-huh. smaller would like jam the machine. Yep. Um, so it was kind of really expensive and yeah. um, and I was living away from home and so that was really annoying. So I actually had friends who had um, bigger houses that they, like other peeps who'd moved over from Hobart and they had like a laundry. So I did actually have my enlarger sent over and I would just print all my stuff off-site because it was just mm. too irritating to have yeah. to work within the constraints of um, what they had going on at the time. Yeah, you must have been so experienced by that point as well, like having, you know, started, you know, doing your own printing um, from such an early age. Yeah, um, yeah, it allowed me more time to experiment, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, a, I was, you know, a mature age student by the time I pr- you know, got to second year, like 21 yep. or something. Mm. Um, so I kind of didn't really fit in with the rest of my peers mm-hmm. anyway because, um, you know, they'd all kind of come through um, high school and stuff together. Yep. Mm. Yeah, right. But Rusden was great. Mm. And so you're now teaching at Deakin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also teach a professional practice course there. Yeah. 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 Um, so we were, uh, like, when I heard that you taught a pro-prac um, course there, I immediately jumped on that because I find that super interesting. Obviously, that's why we're here doing mm. the podcast, looking over your kind of course schedule that you have. It seems so different to, um, you know, like, say, what um, Kira and I had at um, Victorian College of mm. the Art. So much more of a focus on, like, self-care that we saw on there and um yeah there was a few other things but um self-care um wasn't really a thing to talk about then and also it was kind of joked about like one of our classes um was actually called how to keep your head out of an oven in 12 easy weeks which is like actually horrific and I think that that was like meant to be like ha 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 like um and yeah I think we would call that triggering now. Yeah. yeah. I think it was then, except no one, you know. Um, so was that a whole unit, like a professional practice unit? Yeah, we had a few. That was actually not through the art school. That was through, there was a, um, class, a thing called the Centre for Ideas that existed for a while where it was kind of a whole school situation. I think that was in my third year and it was for like dance and um, music and all the different schools combined but that was yeah the title of the class and it was just like why if yeah why set your students up like that yeah and another yeah. we did have a professional practice class as well and I, I remember mental health being addressed um, and it was kind of taken seriously but not in a way that was 
very approachable um and I do remember the teacher saying this thing of like you're gonna find yourself at one point in your career crying on a floor like probably while you're on residency somewhere overseas and that's definitely happened to me but yeah. then I don't remember yeah. any of the yeah. resources yeah, you're gonna be drunk on the floor in Paris <laughs> yeah. and you're crying. gonna wish you were at home you're gonna have no way of yeah, talking to anyone very homesick and that's definitely happened in points but I yeah was trying you know being lying there being like what was I meant to do that's right and that's <laughs> like, how I preface like these this like this set these classes is um I know this is going to seem really abstract to you now so Mm. I don't actually expect any of this to like to land right now but just download the resources and keep them in a folder Mm. so that they're there in case you need to because it it is really hard they're sort of at this point they're working on their final folio and they've got you know multiple units that they're doing this for Mm. and they're super supported right now yeah 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 when you don't have a teacher and you don't have your cohort around you and those, you know, networks disperse a bit. It's so hard. Um, not even just the mental health side, but like how to write a grant and get someone to check over it and support you through that. Or um, I think one of there was a student in that year who um, had taken some time off and come back to it. And she said this piece of advice that I um, think everyone should know, <laughs> which was mm. um, if you have an exhibition coming up, do some food prep and this wasn't a thing that people talked about back then was food prep but she was like go to the grocery store buy food make some really nutritious soup and put it in the freezer so when you're installing you're not like totally run down and going and buying crap food and then making yourself more tired because you're eating crap food and like wasting your money because it's the middle of the night and you're still like at the gallery and most galleries will have a microwave and then you can like heat it up and I was like oh yeah whatever and then I definitely remember having a show where I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> like living off lollies to <laughs> yeah. like sustain me. And I've been stuck my in now. this like, <laughs> thing, gallery for like days on end installing and a friend came who had made the lasagna packed with veggies and she was like, eat a meal. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but now it is something that I employ of just like, okay, I've got a busy period coming up, mm. making sure that like, I'm prepared to do things like that so that I actually have physical and mental energy to like yeah. take on a task. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I feel like coping strategies that we learned when we we're at university were cigarettes and alcohol. Mm. Um, and there wasn't, there wasn't really anyone demonstrating any other, you know, like way of being or, you know, like exercise wasn't really a thing that was ever mm. talked about. No, like it wasn't cool to go mm. like running or do yoga or, you know, like none. Of, there's just there's not the vocabulary to kind of discuss or talk about that stuff in that way. And I mm. remember, like, I remember being like a closet runner when mm. I was in at university. <laughs> like, I didn't, t- I didn't really tell anyone that I went jogging. And I feel like other people were the same. Like, people had their own, mm. you know, fitness practices or whatever that they were doing, but nobody was really talking about it because it was really daggy. <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 it'd be really interesting to see how you know kind of things have changed. Um, you know, now that that I think younger people now are a lot more yeah kind of switched on about that stuff, and it's it's definitely we've we've got a language to t- kind of talk about it now. So, and I find that when we when we get to that part of the trimester that they are really um, able to kind of draw on the the practices that they maintain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, just whether just in relation to their study. Yeah. Not necessarily a, a creative practice, mm-hmm. but getting them to recognise that and kind of sustain that through mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, do you, is there anything that you ha- have kind of brought to that, like teaching that class that you kind of have sort of drawn from your own, I mean, probably a lot of it, but from your own experience where you've been like, this is actually, you know, something that I've really found really helpful. And I mean, we'll talk about resources a, bit, a little yeah. bit later, but, um, you know, that that has influenced you in in really like wanting to drill down in that class and like be like yeah this I is mean what I you think need to it know. is it's physical health mm. and 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 diet like mm. making sure that you're eating really nutritious food um, and getting enough sleep mm. as well like making time because you're just going to be far more productive and clear thinking and mm-hmm. you know all that kind of stuff mm. yeah that's it's that's stuff that I still forget and have to remind myself mm. often that you know it's like oh something's not right in my life and it's like am I doing those the four things and then you're like oh no I'm not so <laughs> fix that and oh it's like magic I mm. think um like you were saying before sometimes it does seem really abstract when you're a student 
that there's going to be all of these things. And I remember when I was in undergrad, just getting my ABN was, that was the first mm-hmm. step. Um, but I, I wish that I had um, educated myself more around the financial side of the arts and how to navigate um, tax and those kinds of things earlier um, so that when my practice, you know, when you do get a grant or when um, how to manage that, how to manage a budget um, and what that looks like in terms of, um, you know, when you're working a job or um, if you're on Centrelink and you get a grant, what happens then? Yeah. Like that's a really tricky thing to do mm. and it can be really scary um, figuring out what you're allowed to do with grant money and what you're not allowed to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think when I was reading over um, that um, class schedule that you have, seeing those things be in there is it's really great to know that students are getting these resources. Yeah, and just be, you know, like we talk about, you know, if, if they're if they're having to save a lot of receipts, you know, we, we share ideas about different apps that people are using, mm. you know, do, what do you do to PDF, so in, you know, receipts and, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. it, is, it is still really abstract for them, for a lot of them. Some mm. of them are already, you know, running mm. their own small sort of yeah. businesses in, you know, I'd say about a quarter of them. Yeah. Mm. I guess like like micro business is, is much more of a thing, you know, now, but mm. like it just, yeah. But just freelancing yeah. and yeah. stuff, you know, and mm. so they're able to also share, which is really good because it's yeah. always very conversational. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think there's something in there about, you know, setting up their websites and how to do all their marketing and that sort of mm. stuff. So a lot of them are using different platforms mm. yeah. so they can sort of share the pros and cons of each. Yeah, that was definitely something that was left out of um, marketing. That was only just a word that I kind of came across in terms of my art practice recently mm. that um, you would need to you know, I kind of guessed that I knew that you needed to market yourself but never had thought of it in that way and that, like, what is the role of social media and how you Mm. can employ that, um, that you can employ a marketing, like, if you've got a big Mm. project coming up, you can employ someone to do marketing for you and that can be a really beneficial thing um, for your project. Um, And, yeah, it's, I think, you know, for a lot of people that might sound really cringy because you know, you're turning your artwork into a business, but essentially you you kind of, if you want to communicate with people, that's how you reach people. Right. It's about reaching an audience, isn't it? Yeah. And so I think, yeah, coming through uni when we did, it was very like, oh, that's too, you know, I think I missed, I missed the whole, you know, point that being an artist is being a small business or running a small business, you know, and that's the only way to really be a successful Sorry, I'm doing air quotes. A successful artist is, you know, you have you have to set yourself up like a small business, but they didn't actually give us any of the skills to do that at mm. that time. So it's really, um, yeah, it's really great to see that's kind of being worked into kind of curriculum. Yeah, and I think now. some institutions as well are starting to recognise that they have a responsibility for educating the artists that they show um, and artist run spaces, providing those resources, mm. um, which is good to see that there's like a shift and that yeah, those things are more available for people. I think also like the graduate survey that um, universities are always chasing mm. their grads to do has also shown um, that students are, you didn't tell me how to do this or, you know, we didn't we didn't cover this sort of stuff. And so it, it, I think people mm-hmm. have to kind of include that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I personally think it should be offered for free after mm. People graduate oh my God, yeah. <laughs> as yeah. a summer school. Yeah, um, you know, kind of get all the other stuff out of the way, and then you know, mm. but um, biz, art biz school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Focus on the folio, and then come back for this. But yeah, I mean, it's a lot to learn all at once. Yeah, I would also like that for art history. <laughs> oh, yeah. I did not pay attention, <laughs> and also I feel like what was taught at that time as well would be very different to what they're teaching at the moment. I would love to like crash mm. some art history. I'll just do undergrad again. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and like have more time and energy and engagement because I think I was, you know, you're exhausted as well. There's so much going on when you're studying to oh, take yeah. in everything. Yeah. So yeah. You're just young. Mm. Yeah. And trying to, you know, figure yourself out. Eating lollies. <laughs> <laughs> so after your undergrad, you then went on to do your master's at Monash and then your PhD at UNSW. Mm-hmm. Um, were you teaching that whole time as well or 
um, has teaching been something that's kind of come in and out at certain points? Yeah, it sort of has. So I I actually was teaching um, as a sessional when I was doing the Masters at Monash. That was like a multimedia design course. Um, And I was also working in a marketing department for the Student Association. So I was sort of doing three things Mm. at once. Um, And then... In the middle of the master's, I applied for the continuing position. So then I shifted full-time into that and finished the master's and then went into the grad cert of higher, higher education, which I had to do for for the lecturing job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the PhD started after that. So I was first year into, well, first, second year into my um, continuing position when I started the PhD. Mm. Um, and at that time, I also met my um, partner and fell pregnant. So then, fell pregnant, that sounds weird, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and so um, his job uh, meant that we uh, needed to move into state. Mm-hmm. So I sort of took maternity leave almost um, a year into the new job and the PhD and we moved to far north Queensland. And so I took a year off basically from mm. work but continued to research and make work while we – and have a baby Mm. and then we moved back to Melbourne Mm -hmm. for a couple of years still did the PhD so the PhD took a really really long time and I had three children in the space you know from the beginning to the end Mm -hmm. um my so when I was doing my um final exhibition in Sydney at the Kudos Gallery my I had a three-week-old baby yeah wow so she um yeah so we did the big road trip to Sydney with all the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so have moved around a lot mm-hmm. while yeah. I was studying. So, And how was Canberra working mm-hmm. on the PhD and being um, – were you living in Sydney at any time during that PhD or was it kind no, of – No, unfortunately yeah. not. It was always uh, – so it was always going to be a distance mm-hmm. um, arrangement. Um, so, yeah, lived in Melbourne at the beginning, Townsville for one year, back to Melbourne for two years. Or no, one year, and then Canberra for two years, and then back to Melbourne, and have been stationary mm. here wow. since. I mean, it's all been a bit of a crazy ride and adventure, and I think actually my most productive time has been those periods of um, mm. of maternity leave. Mm. Yeah. Um, so been really lucky to have great, um, I guess, great ABA that supports me being able to take that leave. Yeah. Um, but it just, but I think also having children really kind of um, makes things really kind of clear and like become really kind of focused when I've got all those different pressures on mm. me. Yeah. That's, thank you for sharing that. That is actually something that we were speaking with a f- friend who's pregnant at the moment about who was kind of feeling a little bit like just hearing stories about how children take so much away from your time as an art practice and um, I kind of put forward the idea that because I remember my mum saying that after having um, she had my brother while she was studying um, and she was saying that she found her times of pregnancy and post-birth really invigorating, creative. She was so fueled up and yeah. fired and so creative and able to make work that she may have not been able to do at other times. Yeah. And... Um, so I kind of proposed this narrative to our friend and she was like, I need to seek, seek out other women that have that experience because mm-hmm. it's not a narrative that we get told often about mm. what women's experiences are yeah. having children and especially women in the arts where, um, you know, the conversation around um, parenthood is, you know, already touchy enough. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, thanks again for sharing that. Mm. Yeah, uh, well, it's it was just my experience. Um, there was a, a lot of like really hard stuff being away mm. from support networks and stuff. But um, but yeah, I have to say that my most productive time has definitely been in mm. those periods. And it is just not having to, you know, the nine to five of the the academic job mm-hmm. is is really intense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, mm. and I take them everywhere. Like that's yeah. mm-hmm. I don't I don't sort of. Um, I try and include them in everything. I mean, they've all learned gallery walk from a really young age. It's like this, yeah, with your hands crossed behind your back. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, touching, and, and just very, like, careful movements. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
But it's hard finding residencies and stuff where you can kind of, um, you know, yeah, that facilitate. Like I've only I've I've taken all all five of us went to a residency in um, Barbados a couple of years ago, and that was just so lucky that the that the um, art space were just really really welcoming and. Mm. You know, when I rocked up on the first day, they had set up because uh, Kamasi was, I think she was, she was about five months old and they'd set up on the, because it was, I was going into the reading room that they have their little um, library that they have set up um, at Fresh Milk and they'd set up a fan and um, like a little bed for her on the table because oh. she wasn't sitting up yet just so yeah. she couldn't roll up, so mm. roll off. Yeah. And it was just the sweetest thing and, mm. you know, yeah. just from then they're just like whatever you need, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's, it's really um, it's really woeful actually that a lot of residencies don't allow your family. It's mm. like a lot of people don't have the resources to just like take off somewhere for, you know, a month or three months yeah. or something mm. without their family. That's just, it's, it's a really, yeah. That also touches on something that, I was speaking with um, Ari from Testing Grounds the other day about roles and things that art spaces can do to create um, spaces for people to feel less anxiety going into. Mm. And we spoke about putting out water, which is something that Testing Grounds does, is having water available for Mm -hmm. people um, and caretaking in that role of just like providing small things that mean so much for people to be able to approach a space and access a space. And I think, um, yeah, spaces for um, parents to be able to access and um, people to be able to approach in different ways um, mm. is, you know, those small gestures, like you said, with the fan yeah. is can mean so much um, for people to be able to, like, yeah, work in a space. Yeah, totally. So over the course of your um, practice, has there been any challenges that, or things that you've needed to overcome to continue your practice? Uh, I think apart from the stuff we've already talked about around, you know, moving around and, you know, um, mm. you know, sharing time between work and family and that kind of stuff, I think the thing that I, that occurs to me is the the kind of undergraduate education that I had that didn't really um, speak to a lot of artists and practices or, yeah, that I that I was really interested in. Like mm. it was a very Eurocentric mm. um, curriculum and I used to write that at the end of, you know, your, your unit feedback and I neither knew it was me, <laughs> which, was, which was fine. Um, but... Uh, you know, I always found myself having to write my own essay questions and, mm. um, you know, suggest people that I could do presentations on or, you know, just kind of find my own, which is which is also great. I mean, that's what you should be doing um, at university anyway. But um, there was just so many, I think, um, gaps in and blind spots in the education, in you know, in that particular kind of undergrad that I had um, at that time. Um, and I got to say, you know, over the years, some of that hasn't sort of changed as much in my observations of things. You know, mm-hmm. I've had colleagues who've said we need more stuff by dead white males. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, that's, that's always been a challenge in finding kind of my, my, my people, I suppose. Cause as I said before, I was sort of, um, I was a few years older than the rest of the cohort when I was coming through, but mm-hmm. also just kind of finding other Pacifica artists, you know, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, there was a sort of a, um, I guess, a, a common diasporic experience. Um, yeah. Um, and I think the first the first person I connected with was probably Salate Tawali, which was um, just doing this really kind of, um, I don't know, random search for, you know, Fijian contemporary artists just to see who else was out there yeah. um, on the internet. And that was probably about 10, over 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finding that she was just here in Melbourne. So I think that's, that's actually how I found most, the most significant people in my life actually is just contacting people randomly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Emma Tavola. It was same search, but she was in um, Aotearoa at the time, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, so that 
that I think that's probably been the main challenge is just sort of feeling a little bit ripped off, you know? Yeah. Um, so I started to kind of, I guess, when I did my honours, um, that was kind of my, my first opportunity to kind of um, craft my own research project. But at the same time, I had a supervisor who, as great as he was, kind of just framed it as art therapy because I was looking at mixed race identity, you yeah, know? Wow. <laughs> um, and he didn't have any kind of context for that kind of work at all. And I, I think Jackie Reaver um, was, um, she wasn't my supervisor, but she was, you know, um, far more important, I think, in a lot of my thinking yeah. at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. It wasn't until a lot later sort of that, um, you know, through Salote and other artists mm. sort of coming through a particular kind of generation that, you know, yep. we were able to kind of form collectives and yeah, things. Kind of yeah. and, community. But also in terms of in the classroom, just not having a kind of a, a critical mm. voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I can speak to, yeah, totally. And it just, you know, the the stuff that you're trying to communicate or yeah. um, mm-hmm. express is just not understood. And so you kind of have these crit sessions where everyone's just silent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. They just don't Absolutely. have the language or the understanding yeah. of what you're mm-hmm. talking yeah. about. One of the, um, I think one of the most um, sort of nourishing things I've ex- experienced in terms of that kind of critique um, was being invited to go to one of Kirsten Little's um, uh, feedback sessions when she was doing her M Masters at RMIT. And so she had her supervisor there, but then she also invited um, a group of um, other Pacifica creative artists mm. to come so that her supervisors could understand the kind of conversations we were having with mm. each other and we were able to give her feedback, you know, with, with more kind of knowledge mm. yep. about where she was coming from. Yeah, that's um, great. So that was really helpful to her but also I think her supervisors really yeah. benefited from seeing mm. that different dynamic. As I was saying earlier, like I, I always really needed to have my humanities studies and I did. I think I ended up doing like a minor in um, women's studies when Deakin used to offer that. And so that kind of um, that language of intersectionality was, I mean, I've, I sought that out from the very beginning when I, mm. when I recognised that there were certain voices in the feminist literature that we were being given that just... Mm. Um, were absent, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, so finding Patricia Hill Collins, you know, feminist standpoint theory was just, you know, that was, that was what I needed to, to mm-hmm. make sense of everything. And that was where I could, I found that I was able to write and speak and that's where my writing completely changed. Um, uh, so I, I'm always really excited when I get students in the classroom who are doing psychology or philosophy mm. um, because they just bring so much to the conversation mm-hmm. and it just enriches their yeah. work in so many ways. Um, about the kind of, you know, the the cultural competency stuff for, for lecturers and academics is, is so important. Um, mm. And there's stuff happening but it's, you know, um, quite often the people that need to be in the room don't do it, you know, yeah. like it's just one of those really difficult things. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I'm, uh, you know, the end game for me is to have a much more diverse um, faculty, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's been, I've been lecturing where I am for over 10 years now and, you know, there's so few people of colour mm-hmm. that have been through. Um but then, you know, you look at the curriculum, not just where I am, but, uh, but you know, generally, um, and you look at the way, you know, classrooms and, and curriculum doesn't, isn't, you know, validating for, for certain, um, you know, marginalised people. So it's not surprising that people are falling through the cracks or not being seen, not being heard. Um, their knowledge isn't valued. Um, mm-hmm. You know, interactions are traumatic and toxic mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, I feel really strongly that, that not enough is done to kind of acknowledge that kind of, um, the systemic change that needs to happen Mm -hmm. so that people actually survive and get through and have the, the strength and the courage to kind of stick with it. Yep. And then, you know, I'm sick of hearing, well, we looked for an Indigenous professor, but, you know, we just couldn't find (sighs) anyone qualified. You know, it's bullshit. Yeah. A situation happened recently where... Uh, a arts organisation was kind of made this comment about 
it kind of reflects badly on us when, um, you know, we've included a diverse group of people, but then um, they have kind of ghosted on us at last minute. It makes us look really bad, like we're not, you know, including, like, a diverse range of people. And we're like, well, why are those people ghosting? That's mm-hmm. because they're not supported. Yeah. Like, yeah, like why if- would anyone want to pull out of something? It's because you know, they don't have resources there to support yeah. them mm-hmm. or make them feel comfortable. That's And if you're if you're ending up with a whole bunch of stuff that's like by, you know, cis white straight guys, then you you've obviously created a process which really suits cis white straight guys and mm-hmm. no one else. Um so you know, maybe look at why that is and, and change it. And yeah. find find like talk talk to talk to the people who are ghosting on you and say like what could we have done to support you better in yeah. this instead of like berating them. Yeah. Mm. Mm. What you just spoke about reminded me of a situation where I was trying to, and in fact, it was when I had the littlest, no, the second child and I had a three-year-old and a newborn and I was I had to meet this writing article deadline and the editor was, um, was in Auckland and, um, and I remember saying, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to pull out. I can't do this. I can't do this. I just, I'm, I'm not going to make the deadline and there's just too many changes to make. And she just said, it's okay, we can do this. And she just, you know, she gave me time. She gave mm. me support, suggestions and made me feel like it wasn't the end of the world. So then I did get my shit together and I did mm. it. Mm-hmm. But it was just that kind of, it was, yeah. that was the voice of support that mm. I needed at that time when I would have just kind of run the other way. Yeah. <laughs> and people, you know. Yeah, need to pull out for different reasons but at different times of their lives. But, you know, who knows what's going on for someone personally. Mm. And uh, I think, um, yeah, often as artists we're trying to, like, be really professional um, and that humanity, especially between, like, a gallery or organisation and the artist is sometimes lost in, like, a series of emails or very professional yeah. conversations rather mm. than, like, reaching out and being like, hey, are you okay? Or, yeah. like... Is there anything I can do? Or no problem. Let's include you next time when you've got some more time. Rather yeah. than sort of getting like, blacklisted, you know. Yeah, and that's yeah. another really scary thing I think as well is not knowing when you can speak up because you're scared of like yeah being, you know, having a cross next to your name like they're a flaky person or like mm-hmm. they didn't you know do something in a certain like way that you who knows what mm. that organisation wants and what their version of a professional artist is. Um, so it's kind of. It's, yeah, it's very murky on the end of the artist to know and to see beyond what the front of that institution is like, um, even if it is just a small, like, artist-run space. Um, as an artist on the other end, you don't know what that board looks like, who's in the room looking at your proposal, who's mm. reading your grant. So, I don't know, I've, a little bit of humanity would be, like, a little bit nice to just know that you're a person operating in the world just as that other person is and reaching out Mm. rather than, yeah. So um, in light of your, the kind of different um, parts of your practice, what does, uh, um, what does being a practicing artist mean to you? Um, I think having the freedom to um, um, explore ideas on my own terms um, uh, and support myself um to do that so I guess having the confidence to kind of um to apply for for funding to make that possible Mm. um so I I, yeah I've had a lot of peers over the years (laughs) (laughs) it's beautiful um you know that are you know that that's kind of that really frightens them is like Mm. stepping into that um that's that kind of um, that world of, of um, I guess, uh, asking for money to, to support your practice, mm-hmm. um, whether it be a residency or uh, an exhibition or, you know, some part of that. Um, so I think, um, I think getting over the, that, that initial fear and then kind of getting into a... Um, uh, you know, developing a, a voice and a confidence to kind of um, contextualise your work and and communicate that to people who potentially know nothing about you or your practice mm. in a way that can, yeah, that that makes sense, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah. 
a little bit separate from that, but um, have you have you found, uh, you know, you talked before about how, you know, there, there was a sort of missing component when you were studying of like people to sort of look up to and kind of see yourself in. Do, do you find, um, you know, there was like a kind of a process of almost stepping into that role yourself where you're kind of providing more of a, you know, like as an educator, as someone, you know, that, uh, you know, people who are younger or people who are studying, obviously, because you're a teacher, but outside of that, that, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're becoming that person that maybe you would have wanted to, you know, see yourself in when Mm. you were, you know, um, kind of maybe studying still or. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't actually ever think I would go into teaching that I kind of fell into the sessional stuff, but, but certainly I think it's sustained me when I've had moments of wanting to walk away from the academic, like the teaching side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's, yeah, I've, I've kind of stayed at times because I felt like um, maybe I do have something to offer, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And I mean also with your, the I community reading room as well, yeah. creating a space um, for people to gather, um, to educate, to learn um access resources and yeah. you know be a community yeah 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 I was thinking about that the other day and and how um how so much of the the collection like a lot of those books you know are really you know are accessible in um in libraries and art libraries and things mm. um I guess it's a very like it's a curated collection because it's kind of the stuff that I'm interested in but I think I was thinking about how um, it's actually been a way to kind of acknowledge a lot of the um, acknowledge and centre a lot of um, Pacifica artists who've come before me. So, mm-hmm. you know, collecting you know catalogues from people like Nikki Hastings McFall and um, and Shigeyuki Kihara and um, and all of the exhibitions that Emma Tavola has put on in South Auckland. You know, because she used to send me stuff when she'd put on shows. Um, that that's probably the most important part of that mm-hmm. that particular project to me is kind of, you know, having this collection of things that probably don't sit and we know don't sit in, in um, mainstream libraries. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there has been this kind of resource for um, for younger artists of colour to kind of see the ephemera, you know, those mm. kind of those smaller things, mm. those, those essays that... Um, those catalogue essays and things that are probably not documented really widely yeah. and stuff. And um, if you don't know where to find them online or, you know, like that can mm. – to find, you know, a specific essay or something can often be quite hard or you might not even yeah. know that it exists so how would you know to look for it? Right, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. they haven't been archived, you know, in a way that's very good or, you know, mm. it, it's very short-term or, you know, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and that's so important, you know, for, for mm-hmm. younger artists to be able to see, especially um, First Nations artists, to be able to see the lineage of their practice, you know. Um, yeah. It's an incredible resource that you've created. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, there are other, you know, so many that exist around the place. It's a pity mm. that, um, you know, a, a larger institution doesn't see the value of that kind of thing and start their own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's my hope, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, the... The library at the Queensland Art Gallery is great in that yeah. in that respect, particularly for this region. Um, but you know, it's not it's not community based, or yeah. it doesn't yeah. sort of feel very accessible mm. mm-hmm. like other institutional spaces often yeah. don't. Yeah, but that that um, that library's actually come up before in other podcasts where it's they have a fantastic. Yeah, just Queensland libraries in general have a really great. Oh, is that right? You know, yeah, oh, yeah, like I, yeah, quite often I've you know looked up really like abstract things and like you know on Trove or whatever, yeah. and like that the only place it will come up is like you know in Queensland and in some library in Queensland. So yeah, that's <laughs> happened quite often, and it's actually really frustrating because it's <laughs> a little bit far. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um. So given that you have um so many things that your practice encompasses. Um, what does your practice look like? Um, can you give us a day or a week or a month in your life? Mm-hmm. Um, so the week, yeah. So there's often a plan for for what the week should look like um, mm. or 
the month, sometimes the year, but yeah. Um, so a lot of it is spent with the children, you know, like managing and, and wrangling them. Um, things were a lot easier when they were little because you could just, you know, pop them on your back or on your front and, and just go. Mm. Um, but now they have their own lives that need supporting. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, I spend less time on the road uh, than I used to. And I didn't even get my licence till I was 30. Mm. Like I would just PT it everywhere. My mum never drove. We just walked everywhere. So mm. kind of making that transition was um, pretty full on for me. But um, so, um, you know, a week. Uh, so I guess my husband and I have to kind of look at diaries. Like I usually have multiple calendars. So my online calendar, my phone the one on the wall and then one that's a book. So that's really messy already mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and I need to kind of get that <laughs> yeah. sorted. But um, I guess, I you know, I'll get up at like 5.30 um, on a good day. Winter's hard though. I've been really, mm-hmm. I've just really slipped this winter. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it's warmer, I get up at 5.30, I go to the gym, I'm home by um, 7 and... Um, the kids are usually still asleep. Um, I'm still breastfeeding the three-year-old, so um, I'll usually feed her, get the kids ready to school, um, drop them off, uh, get to work, answer a bunch of emails. If I, you know, um, usually teaching one or two days um, a week. Um, so my day usually, you know, consists of responding to student queries, mm-hmm. um, Marking, working on assessments, um, updating cloud, uh, so like online mm-hmm. content, um, meetings with colleagues, sessional staff, um, can be any number of those things. I, I'm not very good at like keeping a full day clear for research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of just try and squeeze it into gaps. Um, yeah. One thing I've found really useful actually lately is um, rather than um, sitting in my office when I do have a bit of free time is actually going to the student library mm. and finding uh, a quiet space to work because it's so tempting for students to just come and knock on your door yeah, right. mm-hmm. when you're you know, accessible like yeah. my office is. Um, and just, you know, setting that time aside. So um, I don't have a studio so um, I have had studios on and off over the years, but I just find that I, I can't commit enough time. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of have to work where I can and when I, when I can mm. around everything else that's going on. So usually, yeah, um, I might, if I have to do school pickup, then I kind of have to leave at around about three o'clock, um, get everyone home, um, or take them to basketball, dancing or whatever other kind of activities they've got on on a weekday and then um, have like reading time, research time when they've gone to bed mm-hmm. if I can be bothered. Mm-hmm. Like I'm usually pretty exhausted. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I find I'm more predict- like productive on mm-hmm. weekends, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. weekend evenings. Yeah. Do you, do you sort of give yourself like a day, like do you try and give yourself off like a day off where you're like this is the weekend or do you kind of like you're like oh it's the weekend which means there's time off to do research no I try and give myself a day off definitely yeah um yeah I enjoy my time with my kids too much Mm -hmm. so um, yeah usually Saturday I just completely spend yeah with them doing what you know ferrying them around to various classes but also just being with them hang time yeah Mm. And um, turned off all my social media recently, which has mm-hmm. made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Just really lo- loving that. I mean, I turn it on again when I've got projects. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which, um, yeah. But, um, yeah, Sunday's usually a good time to kind of just clear and do and like clear my head and mm-hmm. um, and plan things and think about and research and do mm-hmm. whatever I need to. Yeah. So uh, some of the resources you've already talked about are some um – some books and some artists' work that you have found really influential. But have you? Are there any other um, resources throughout your practice that have really assisted you um, in continuing, or that you want to shout out? 
Um, yeah, they're kind of pretty daggy, though. <laughs> so, um, I um, I really love. Uh, I don't. I probably won't say what it is. Well, it's it's just like a yoga subscription, mm. like that's. Um, it's really cheap. It's like twelve dollars a month, mm. but it means that I can do it every day and like I'm in my own time because that's what I find is the most difficult thing. Is like if I can't get to the gym in the morning, is being okay. Well, I'll just I do an do hour on the mat or I'll do half mm. an hour. Mm. Um, and so that's been really great is just having this subscription. And also I can like choose if I've got 15 minutes or if I'm in the office and it's just like, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, that's really helpful. Cause it's like, um, it, yeah, it gives me more energy, but it's also, so, you know. Yeah. Where, how great. do you access that? Is that like a, like a video internet thing? Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah just yeah. in my, so it's Gaia. Dot yeah. Com. Oh, yeah. 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 No, that's um, great. <laughs> but it is, I have found it great. And I, and like if I'm traveling too, mm-hmm. like if I'm in a hotel or mm-hmm. staying okay. at someone's place, like it, it's just there. I'm freaking out about doing some traveling soon and not being able to go to the yoga studio. I attend. So it's good to know yeah. that guy is good because I was wondering about that one. If oh, that's yeah. yeah, I do yeah, like perfect. it. There are lots of others out there, but I've just kind of stuck with that one. Yeah. Um, and also because it's got, um, yeah, it's got meditations mm. that you can do, but mm. um, mm-hmm. um, crazy documentaries that I rarely ever watch. Um, <laughs> but no, I love it and uh, highly recommend that one. Yeah. But podcasts too, like I really like because um, uh, I spend more time in the car than I would like. Um, yeah, just finding and good podcasts mm. to listen to. Like I like Alex L. Um, yeah, it's kind okay. of a self self-care yeah yeah. which is good great yeah i'll have to look that up is there any other podcasts yeah please we you know we love podcasts oh there's a bunch (laughs) but i actually find them like years after they've finished Mm. um oh isn't that really tragic when you're just like oh this is the best thing ever and then you're like oh wait they're not making anymore yeah Yeah. Yeah. i always seem to find those um they're just i've got there's just hundreds Mm -hmm. that are sort of um random um mostly like people of color um academics um I you know I mean I seek out all the voices I wish were in my life yeah (laughs) basically yeah Yeah. um can I just share a podcast that we both really love and I know some other guests that we've had on the show are also that one of the other guests has introduced it to us a while ago Mm -hmm. um I already know what you're gonna say (laughs) it's called still processing and it might be one that you're interested in um it's by two culture writers at the New York Times um they're both queer people of color who dissect pop culture in such amazing ways. It's the conversation that you want to be having. Mm. Like Always. I, oh, yeah, it's amazing and I love them both. What's it called so again? Still Processing. Ah, cool, I just okay. can't like shout out that podcast enough because <laughs> it's, it's incredible and um, they're both writers as well and mm-hmm. their texts are incredible. Jenna just wrote this amazing piece for pride that um was incredible mm. uh, yeah I can't sing its praises enough so cool. just I'm uh, look it up yeah mm. just if you're and they're still going as well so it's one you won't be heartbroken about <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah their season it's I, it's always just way too long between seasons for them but um yeah um so if you could travel back through time right to the start of your career or you know even further back um and tell yourself something or give yourself some advice um from, you know, everything that you know now, um, what would it be? Um, I probably don't have a backup plan. Yeah. Don't have a plan B. Mum always told me to, <laughs> to have a, <laughs> to, you know, to have a backup plan. And I think that I, mm. I would rather people just kind of, I think people work it out. Yeah. Um, be brave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah, right. I think that that advice was came from a place of fear mm-hmm. rather than courage. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. I, I probably don't know if I'd give my own children that advice, actually. Let me think about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would. I would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, don't have a backup plan. Just do it. Oh, that's really inspiring. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's a really nice place to wrap it up. Um, yeah. Thank you so much much for being in the studio with us today. Thank you. 
Can you great. check back in with us um, at some point to see if we have given your children that advice? <laughs> <laughs> that sounded like a Nike ad. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you. This episode is recorded on the sovereign land of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thanks for listening to ProPrac. You can listen to other episodes and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can stay up to date with what we're up to on Instagram at ProPracPodcast or send us an email at ProPracPod at gmail.com.